For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Right, okay, welcome to another Britflix podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and I've got with me today Lucy Hay. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Stuart. Hiya. Now, for those listening in, um, you describe yourself as a novelist, script reader, and script editor, and I, I might add that you're also a member of the team that pulls together the London Screenwriting Festival. That's correct. And I think it's safe to say for, for most people, for a lot of people listening, the, the middle two roles might be the ones that um, might not be obvious or they might have a view on it. So would you be able to describe what a script reader is and what a script editor is in the context of developing a movie? No problem. Uh, a script reader is somebody who just literally reads scripts. It's exactly as it says on the tin. Uh, Many writers will send in uh, submissions to uh, initiatives or, or contests or production companies or agents. And the script reader is, is usually the lowest person on the ladder. Um, they have to uh, read and assess uh, a screenplay on the basis of its story, its characters, uh, usually other things that come into factor is what it looks like on the page or its format. Uh, its dialogue obviously is an important part, um, as is the arena, which is not just the locations, but uh, the feel of the piece, if you will. You know, it will take in things like uh, motifs and uh, any literary allusions that are, that are present, uh, that kind of thing. And also just anything else that occurs to the reader as they're reading you know for example things like uh, opportunities uh, for uh, financiers and investors for example um, a, a genre things like that um, whereas a script editor is very much uh, is not about assessment it's about development so a script editor will be assigned to a screenplay and to a writer and actually will um, develop that story with the uh, with the writer so if they're more of a facilitator really okay they're kind of like a sounding board or someone who can actually help the writer work through problems and issues in terms of um developing their work now it's interesting now what you were saying about the script reader that, that almost sounds like it depends who employs the script reader in a sense as to what 
hat you might put on when you're reading it absolutely yeah absolutely I mean I've done a lot of reading for um, uh, private investment companies and they're really interested in obviously the financial return of movies and what uh, filmmakers can do to make sure that that financial return comes back Uh, whereas I've also done um, reading for screen agencies and they're interested in things like how do we showcase you know the UK and how do we make it look really good um, you know, with UK centric stories. Um, and then you compare that to a literary agent who's literally interested in the writing and whether the writer presents a kind of sale worthy return, but more in the sense of, you know, how can they nurture that writer? I mean, I was originally taken on as a screenwriter with my agent, for example, mm. but as the, to, as our relationship developed, he became convinced that I was more of a novelist. And he was absolutely right, because as soon as I uh, wrote a novel, it sold within a month. Uh, whereas I've been knocking on the door <laughs> with uh, screenplays, you know, being told I was a good writer for years, nothing happened. And then I write a novel and boom, it's sold. It's crazy. So, you know, agents can sometimes have like gut feelings about what their clients should do and actually help nurture them in that direction as well. And 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 a, and a writer can engage you directly too, though, can't they? You you can. That's correct. Yes, I, I work. I write for. Um, I read for private clients as well. Um, so people just contact me via my website, and uh, because I mean, you should never send out a first draft of anything. Absolutely not. So you need some kind of feedback, and obviously you can get feedback from other sources that are free, um, such as peer review, or maybe if you did a, a script reading with actors and uh, you know gave them food and drink for their time, that kind of thing. Um, but certainly. I think peer review can only get you so far, especially if you don't know anyone in the industry. Mm. Then it's then it's problematic because it can only get you so far. So in that sense, is 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 a reader even even on a private client basis is potentially a connection to someone that's looking for a film that you're writing, is it worth? A good reader yeah. is uh, one, I mean, there's a lot of people who set themselves up as readers who are are just writers, you know, jobbing writers, or even not even real writers. I, I mean, I, I hesitate to use that word, but, you know, if they haven't had anything produced, if they don't have any contacts, then they're no b- further along than you are. So really, you're paying someone for peer review. I don't think that's right. Mm. I think you, if you're going to, if, if you're going to uh, engage a reader, then it should be someone with uh, with real connections, who's who's worked um, who's worked in the industry, who knows people, who who maybe um, is privy to various information, like uh, who's making what and when, and who's who's talking about whatever. Um, because otherwise, you are essentially paying for peer review. Indeed, indeed. So, so in that sense, then, what when you're when you're getting a script from a writer? More, more than anybody else. What, what would be a telltale sign for you that uh, that the, the scripts you've received? Like just a couple of examples of one, not naming names, but just examples of of what 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 shape a script is in when it's not ready for public consumption. Cliche is the biggest problem (laughs) in the spec pile. Um, Cliché and just overly familiar tropes over and over again and also stories that have been told over and over again. It's quite staggering, actually. And they're not connected or anything like that, which is so it's um, an amazing coincidence. But I think it's because we're essentially part of a herd 
really. And it's that kind of herd or pack mentality that we all come up with the same things at the same time um, based on things like news reports or anniversaries or songs or whatever um, programs that are popular at the time. I get so many science fiction um shows in the vein of things like X-Men and Doctor Who over and over again. It is just crazy. And it they very rarely break new ground. So on that basis, um, they don't get made or don't go anywhere. So, you know, if you have this fantastic writing, that's brilliant. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about concept. So they don't get anywhere with it, which is kind of a tragedy, really. It's it, Originality is, is highly prized. I mean, I also say it's overrated because you can be too original because <laughs> if you're outside of your time, then obviously that's an issue as well. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's like most things. It's about balance. You've got to have something new to bring to the table. If you don't have something new, nobody's interested. So, so it pays. So, from the sounds of things, there it pays to be working at the bit at the bit before you start writing a script. As Absolutely, much as it does. I always say the the <coughs> best work you will do is working out your concept first. I can't tell you how many writers I've had who've started writing a draft because they've had this brilliant idea, only to find out that the idea isn't as great as they think it is, or that it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And so they have to return to page one over and over and over again, and you're just making a silk purse out of a sow's ear, essentially. <laughs> now, when um, in a previous podcast, I, I spoke to the writer-director, Jake Amalu, who... You've you've worked with any, and he mentioned you, and hence why we're talking now. Um, and he and he talked about um, the, the working with you on um, deviation and an assassin, I think, isn't it? Yes. Of recent years, mm-hmm. and um, from his point of view, he he described it as you know, from again, <laughs> segueing from what we're just saying there. From the moment he's got this idea. He might he'll send you a bit of his thoughts on that idea, and then as a, as kind of does this concept sound okay? How does this work? And and I think the way you described it was then you then you just be batting forwards for a bit with him. How do you see that role from your point of view in terms of um, what what you're trying to serve, as it were, for, for, to help develop that story? Um, well, again, I'm I'm like a facilitator. I mean, me and JK are very close. He's like a brother to me. So it's a very easy kind of relationship in terms of building something up from the bottom up. Um, but, you know, he, I do with him what I would do with anyone, which is he pitches me something mm. and then I go away. I have a think about it. I look at um, IMDB Pro. I discover, you know, if it's been done before, if it has, then... Um, um, you know, how was it done? How is ours different? Uh, for, uh, you know, we've been working on a, uh, another uh, draft of another movie that should hopefully go into production next year um, that's a science, uh, science fiction thriller. And, you know, he told me the pitch and I was so amazed by it. I was like, why haven't I heard this before? Because <laughs> he's literally pitched me so many things. And, of course, I've been pitched to, you know, up to the eyeballs by other people. And I was like, immediately I was struck by the facts like, oh my God, I can't believe how great that is. It's true what they say that you know within about a minute the good pitches. Mm. And I knew in my gut as well. I think gut instinct has has a lot to do with it. But I still went away and I still checked out all the other stuff and so did he. And we came back, it's like, yeah, no one has done this before. 
we must do this. And that was, you know, we work with another guy, Sam Hutchinson, who uh, was a student last year at Bournemouth University, and he's work, he's going into script development now. Uh, and I've, I suppose he's kind of my uh, uh, protege, I suppose you would say. <laughs> you know, I've been kind of training him up script editing wise, and you know, he's he's connected with JK really well as well. And you know, the three of us will actually. Um, talk about all these concepts and build them up and build them up. And then uh, JK will go to a treatment and we will go through all the plot beats and the characterization. We don't really, we're not really concerned at this point by dialogue. Um, Even when JK goes to draft, um, the dialogue will just be very utilitarian. He doesn't, uh, it's something that he does last in a way that I am a proponent of. I think dialogue is the least of any drafts problems. And and it's something that you should do last because you essentially have to create the places where the dialogue has to go. A lot of a lot of writers make the mistake of believing that dialogue is their dialogue is just so fantastic. They end up keeping the um, keeping the structure to co- accommodate the dialogue. It should be the other way round. Um, and J.K. totally gets that, which is fantastic. I mean, he's he's been a writer over in L.A. Uh, for the studios. You know, he knows how it works. You know, working with him is a dream. It's, it is just brilliant. I mean, he's taught me so much and ha- about how writing doesn't actually necessarily have to be hard work. I mean, obviously, it's hard. Pulling stuff out of yourself and creating it from nothing is what's hard. But the actual act of writing shouldn't be hard. And it's and it's not hard in that regard um, with JK, which is just such a welcome change. And what, what I'm getting here from what you're saying is that it, it, it also it's it's the relationships between the people that are collaborating with each other because obviously having having skill sets is one thing but being able to work with one another and sort of have that kind of give and take with each other is an important part of the development process I guess absolutely completely true I mean you know people talk about the industry and actually there is no industry not really there's just collections of people who all work really well together you know whether it's me and JK and Sam and Jonathan Sothcott working together or whether it's all the guys at Working Title or all the guys at Universal it's all about relationships if you can't work with other people you will not work in the media that's just the way of it and that's why I always say to writers you've got to understand it's not just about the writing it is about how you work with other people it's about networking it's about the relationships you create yeah no i I interviewed andy stark um, ben wheatley's producer and if you look at that team it was a small team on down terrace but Mm -hmm. the core of it is the same that worked on sightseers and a field in england it's just grown a bit bigger with productions but sensibly it's a core of people who have like you say as almost as a collective Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the sound designer, you know, the, the script writer and everything is has been a organic process, not not a classified ad. Yeah. Know, well, I mean, wants. absolutely. I mean, we've grown in in size and stature just within one movie. You know, we've gone from deviation where it was essentially me and JK, um, you know, who started that. Um, and now we're on to Assassin and we've got we've got Sam, we've got Jonathan Sothcott um, and then we've got his team as well. He was able to bring in uh, the Kemp brothers, you know, it's, uh, it's just, you know, it gets bigger and bigger. I mean, Jonathan came to us because he liked Deviation so much. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it, you're as good as your last piece of work and you can make 
you know, significant strides uh, by just doing the best you can and working together as well as you can. So um, that's that's what it's all about, really. Okay. Now, now both those films are thrillers, aren't they? That's right. So yeah. um, that's my segue, by the way, Lucy. Did you saw mm-hmm. I did that? Um, you've written a book called Writing and Selling Thriller Screenplays, which I'm guessing pulls together a lot of experience and probably touches on some of the things you've already talked about. But generally speaking, you know, what 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 does what what do you cover in the book? Because um, from reviews that I've read, um, it's quite a wide gamut from you know from that very basic concept right through to how the hell you sell a script. Absolutely. I mean, it's in three parts, basically, Um, although the first two parts is all about um, the writing of the thriller, essentially. Um, The first part is all about the genre itself, and it's very much a love letter to the genre. I love thrillers. It's my absolute favourite genre. It's the genre that got me into screenwriting and into movies in the first place. Um, And... Uh, you know, more, uh, I've literally loved it since I was a girl. So, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I also love things like horror and I like comedy and even romantic comedy, but thriller is the one genre that I never tire of watching. I'm always interested in seeing a good thriller. Uh, so the first section of the book is very much all about the different types of subgenre of thriller and all the different things that you can actually consider when actually coming up with your own concepts. Uh, From there, it's all about the writing of the thriller from concept through to logline, through to outline, um, structure, um, all those things. Um, And then the third section is all about selling your um your screenplay but also more importantly selling you as a writer and again I go on about how you can actually create relationships online in particular because of course loads of people say to me all the time oh I don't live in London oh I don't live in LA I live in the middle of a tiny village in Scotland I'll never get anywhere I'm on an island blah 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 and it's like yeah I totally know where you're coming from. You know, I live in the middle of nowhere now. I did when I started out. I live in Devon. Um, you don't have to live in London. You know, everyth- yeah, everything's opened up to you. Anything is possible if you have a strategy. And so I actually go into the notion of, you know, submission strategies and options and uh, finding producers and filmmakers and packaging and attachments and casting directors, you know, all the things that, you know... People have been telling me for years that they just don't know where to start. Well, I, th- I mean, I mean, it's often the bit that the books shy away from, isn't it? A lot of books will give you the, you know, will deconstruct films and explain how you can construct one, but very few give you any real advice on um, what to do with a script when it's when it's done. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of people are like, I've written a script, now what? You know, there's loads, as you say, there's loads of books about uh, screenwriting, there's loads of books about film studies, you know, where there's Mm. this kind of, which I'm really not keen on, this kind of retrospective look and kind of imposing what they think happened. It's Mm. like, why not just actually ask the filmmakers? I I don't get that, but, (laughs) you know, fine, whatever. And I just think if you're going to tell people how to do stuff, you should have done it. And of course, we have. So, you know, we had um, seven distributors look at Deviation and we got five offers, you know, which is amazing, you know, for a, for a low budget film um, for, uh, you know, with five people in it. I think there was there, I think it was five people, seven people. Um, and, you know, da- Danny and Anna 
it was mostly a two-hander really between them for the for the whole movie with uh, a few um smaller parts kind of threaded in that's it so you know if you're gonna say this is how you do it you should have done it and, I, and I how do people get I think, I think that's the kind of basics no no totally totally and, and how do people get hold of the book they can get it on Amazon. They can get a print copy there or Kindle. They can buy it on or uh, you can get it from London Books and a variety of other bookshops. I believe you can get it direct from the publisher as well, which is Camera Books, Camera with a K. Okay, excellent, excellent. Now, you hinted on it before with your saying you, you've loved thrillers for a long while. So who or what book, film, play, etc. cetera, do, do, do you remember hooking you into writing and all the movies? Um, I think it was two things really. I think the first one was Jurassic Park. Okay. I was, I was about I was about twelve when that came out, and uh, I went and saw it. And there was so much hype at the time, and I was really looking forward to it. And then I was outraged when I saw it. I was <laughs> absolutely enraged. I thought it was terrible. And I was really, really disappointed, which sounds incredible now because I actually, it's actually one of my favourite movies and it's put together so well. But as a young girl, I had believed, maybe erroneously, that um, that the CGI would be better than it was, perhaps. I don't know. And I just instinctively could see where there was the, the puppets ended and the CGI began. And so I felt really kind of let down by that, especially in the T-Rex sequence where we see the foot come down in front of them, in, um, in front of Sam Neill and the girl in front of the car when he, before he pushes it over the edge. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, that's really obvious and getting really angry. And another thing that made me really angry was the fact that there was the lot the velociraptors didn't add up you know there was one downstairs and she shut the door and then they shut one in the in the uh freezer and yet there were still two in the hallway it and sounds so it sounds like you've had to convince yourself of your 12 year old anger as you've grown up yeah 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 <laughs> and uh so we're left to assume that the one that was in the power station has let itself out even though we never saw it come out and that really really gave me rage i was so angry and so when the T-Rex came in and ate them and effectively solved the story. Um, it's not actually a juice ex machina uh, because for, for lots of complicated reasons, it's set up earlier when it kills the gazelle things um, earlier up. But I just still felt really, really angry and really, really annoyed. And I remember kind of thinking that it was a juice ex machina because of, um, I remember relating it back to Alice in Wonderland and how it was all a dream and all that kind of stuff. And I just was so angry. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's, what, got, that's uh, what got me into it. And then, of course, also Joe Esterhaz. I saw the same year, I saw Basic Instinct in the cinema. I wrote about it on the London Screenwriters Festival blog. I was far too young. To be mm. watching a film like Basic Instinct, I was really confused when I came out. I, bet, <laughs> I, just, I, I led, you know, a sheltered life. I lived in the middle of nowhere and there was this very sexy thriller and I was kind of in love with Sharon Stone as well and, uh, you know, Michael Douglas is naked a lot of the time and I was like, my mind was completely blown. So these two massive, very Hollywoodized media images just totally swirled through my brain, my 12-year-old brain. Yeah. And... Um, and kind of switched it on to the notion of writing and the power of writing and um i was absolutely hooked from there on in well i'm sold (laughs) (laughs) it's like it it is 
it is fun as you're growing up that um, to be able to cap, re- recapture some of that sometimes, and, and and occasionally I think maybe occasionally films do do that now, but obviously it's fewer and far between because we're just a bit wiser and we know a bit more, don't we? I suppose. Yes. Yes. But it is always good to remember those. Mine, mine was Time Bandits, and uh, I don't think I don't think I can recite more lines from any film than that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, children's movies made a, a massive uh, influence on me, especially in the growing up in the eighties. Everything was very colourful, and science fiction and fantasy, you know, made a huge splash. I mean, mm. uh, films like Labyrinth, Legend, uh, Never Ending Story, Willow, you know, they were all highly imaginative story worlds. You know, huge epic arenas, um, and they made a massive, massive influence, especially because at the same time I was reading things like uh, the Chronicles of, of Thomas Covenant and, um, uh, you know, Enie Blyton, Mallory Towers, Faraway Tree, all that kind of stuff. You know, I was never actually into things like Terry Pratchett or whatever because I'd, I'd never heard of him, but I suppose, you know, I would have liked him if I'd, I'd known about him at the time. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, at a very young age, I started reading uh, Dean Koontz and Stephen King and Clive Barker, again, far too young for any of those. Um, so as a result, I had, you know, I suppose I was a, I was quite precocious and very confused. <laughs> but, I, think, I, think a lot, I think a lot of us were too young to be reading some of that sometimes. But, yeah, Absolutely. You know, I remember up. reading Cabal when I was about 13 and it just it just blew my mind. Um so you know, it it's it's was very interesting time of my life. It was a very kind of, you know, there was myriads of of story threads going through my brain. And I remember being very young and basically rewriting stories over and over um to kind of, I suppose I was finding my voice I suppose and I suppose that's what writers are doing now writing their screenplays and just rewriting Doctor Who or X-Men hmm. but unfortunately they're sending them out into the world and then of course uh. then they get a name for themselves as being unoriginal because all they've done all they're doing is what I did when I was 13 but of course I didn't show anyone and I think that's possibly key is that maybe you shouldn't show your very first scripts or your very first creative work anyway to people because of course you're just going to essentially rehash stories that you've all that have already been told of course of course now in in your um in your description about your book you discussed strategies and you you talked about the idea that being in remote parts of britain just is is not exactly is not the disadvantage it used to be I mean, it's always going to be a little different because you, you cut off from people in terms of networking but there are ways with with the advent of social media to um to get out there as well, to get your name out there, to get your views out there and things like that. And obviously, not obviously at all to the listener, but um, I certainly have plenty of conversations with Lucy through the medium of Twitter, that's for certain. And uh, I think you were uh, joking this morning that lost a couple of followers after um, after a few tweets you did about what was, what was the subject this morning? Dinosaur porn. <laughs> Well, like like I said to you earlier, you didn't lose me on that one. I, I had a look. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I'm, I'm more serious now. Um, and and this this people. I mean, what what's? Do you want to give your website because your website, as as well as having written the book, your website itself is a great resource, and that is. That's Bang to Write, which is B A N G, the number two W R I T E. And uh, that's a site for screenwriters and novelists. Uh, They can read about uh, writing craft, 
about social networking and submission strategies on there, essentially. Uh, we do have other posts, but that's what it's predominantly about. Now you've got, I mean, and being that, do you want to give us a quick, a quick, maybe a quick two or three do's and two or three don'ts in terms of social media? Um, in terms of social networking, you absolutely should be social networking um, and you absolutely should be tweeting and Facebooking and uh, Pinteresting or, you know, whatever hmm. suits you. You should you should be doing at least one of them, at least. And you should be talking online with other writers at least once a week. And that's made so easy now by Script Chat on Twitter in particular, but ever? also by LinkedIn groups and Yahoo groups and Google Plus groups. You know, you can, you can find these writer salon anywhere and you needn't pay any money. So, you know, you, you should definitely be talking about writing at least once a week for an hour or two with other writers and actually finding other writers to speak to all the time. Um, you probably shouldn't be obnoxious unless you can be really funny. That's, <laughs> you know, that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's, you know, if you're going to be confrontational, if you're going to bait people, if you're going to uh, do things, you know, there should be, um, you know, a specific, you know, you should not get, ugh. excuse me, I'll start again. Um, in terms of social media don'ts, don't be a dick. That's basically the key point. Um, it's fine to get into banter with people that you know and have created a relationship with. Um, as people know from my own Twitter, it's fine to be sarcastic as long as you're being funny and you're not drawing attention to people. It's fine to bait people as well. Again, if you know who they are and, and how they respond to these things. Mm. Um, but, in you know, don't be confrontational for the sake of it. Don't... Um, make demands of people all their time um, and just and don't ask people really obvious questions either I mean it's just if you can google it google it first it's it's really quite aggravating I mean one one uh, one question I get all the time is how do I become a script reader it's like dude seriously or you know if you put how do I become a script reader into Google you get not only thousands of results I think my article how do I become a script reader is, is one is top or near the tops so, you know it's very very easy to find these things also um, I've got the uh, bang to write required reading list I mean I don't mind people find um, helping find links about a subject that's absolutely fine uh but if it's easy to to google and a lot of these things are then you really should google should be your first port of call definitely and and talk about your website then what, what's what's sort of the most more popular pages you were mentioning one this morning uh, before we started the podcast that that's that, that is like a hardy perennial for you in terms of where people yes. keep coming back for more Yes, Carol Blake from Blake Friedman wrote me an article called 29 Ways Not to Submit to a Literary Agent. And that is one of uh, Bang to Write's most popular posts. It probably gets in the range of about 50 hits individually every day anyway. And then as soon as someone tweets it on Twitter or Facebook, it, it gets, you know, 300, 400 more. I mean, my website has actually crashed on more than one occasion because of that article. Um, another article that's really, really popular is um, one about, uh, called The Tip of the Iceberg. And it's all about 
um, that I wrote, I think it was about a year or 18 months ago. And it asks loads of questions of yourself. You know, what, what should I be doing in my uh, screenwriting career? And there's there's about 20 questions that you need to ask yourself. Um, and that is really well. Uh, there's another one called Fuck Off You Cunts. <laughs> and <that laughs> I've not seen that one. Yeah, it's all about swearing in scripts, and that is really, really popular. I always get loads of hits to that one. And then there's another more recent one called Ten Reasons Your Blog Sucks. I think people are beginning to switch on to the notion that they should be blogging and they should be doing social media. And, and my social media posts in general are really popular. Ten Reasons My Blog Sucks is really popular, as is another one I wrote last year called Congratulations, You Just Totally Shot Yourself in the Foot, which is how not to do social media. So those are probably okay. the ones off the top of my head that get the most hits on a, on a daily basis. And your, your Twitter, and, and people want to say hello to you on Twitter, your Twitter... Monica I'm bound is. to write on Twitter as okay. well. So it's all easy. Bang to write, listener. It's easy to follow that. Mm-hmm. So then, as um, before we get on to the final question, there's the penultimate question for a bit of fun. If you could reboot okay. or rewrite any movie, what would it be? Oh, so many. There's so many that you know have so many missed opportunities. And you just think, oh, you know, it's so obvious what they should have done. Okay. It's, it drives me crazy. I think possibly the one that I would reboot um, off the top of my head. I mean, one of my favourite movies is Predator. I love that. You know, I love all the kind of hyper-masculinity and all that shit, you know. So, you know, it's very, you know, it, it's exciting and it's held up well and the music's great and the editing's cool and Arnie is at his best and I was in love with Arnie when I was a girl and it was... it. It was one of my favourites and still is. It, it stood up really, really well considering no, no, it's what? No. It's the best part of 30 years old. It's amazing. Yeah, no, I watched but, it again only last year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the pace and the tone is, you know, is great. I love it. Uh, I think what I would do then is I was really excited to see Predators. I thought Predators looked really amazing. And when I watched the first act, I was really blown away. I was like, wow, this is brilliant. I love it, you know, because they got, they'd taken all the best bits of Predator from, you know, 30 years ago and and kind of translated it into modern times. I think it came out in 2010, didn't it? And so I thought, oh, this is really, really um, promising. I, I, I was actually genuinely enjoying it. And then as soon as Act One and the setup was over, it started to slow down in really obvious and bad ways. For instance, uh, the female character, she's a block, black ops operative for uh, Mossad, mm. and yet she's compassionate. Sorry, what? You know, <laughs> on, on the basis she's what? On the basis she's female? Really? I mean, I'm not saying she has to be a hard ass, but why does she have to be compassionate? That is weird. And then on top of that... Um, the supposed twist at the end was really, really obvious, you know, mind-bendingly, crushingly obvious. You know, as soon as that guy turns up and he's unarmed and he's only got a scalpel with him, um, you think, uh-oh, here we go, here's a Dr. Death. Oh, and guess what? He is, you know, um, which really pissed me off because it was so easy to conceal that. I could have fixed that in a weekend, you know. Um, the whole point of the Predators is that they like fair fights, 
We saw that in the first movie when the Predator could have just killed Arnie in the hand-to-hand combat, but he takes off all his armour, he takes off all his knives, and he fights him hand-to-hand because he likes a fair fight. So why didn't they, the mercenaries, believe that the Predators had dropped the Doctor in as triage? So obvious. (laughs) I've not seen the remake. I, I avoided it for the for reasons that you've just explained, really. So yeah. my my fear that it wouldn't be as good. Yeah, I mean, it's there's lots of great things about it, and but there's loads of really curious things as well. There's these other monsters that get dropped onto the planet um, that don't really go anywhere. You know, they end up chasing them around the place, and then they kind of forget about them. Mm. And it's like, what's that all about? And then there was the Lawrence, you know, the the Lawrence Fishburne sequence that originally was supposed to be played by Arnie, apparently, and it would have made a lot more sense if it was. But I can understand why they went with with Lawrence Fishburne because he's very enigmatic, and it's really nice to see um, a black character in that kind of role in particular. That's not like a, a scary African dude like the other guy. Mm. Um, you know, uh, African kind of uh, warrior type, you know, so that, so that was interesting. But then they appeared to make him gay, which I didn't know was justified, really. I didn't really understand what the point of that was on a story level or on a characterization level, because he starts talking about, ooh, the men in Paris. And I'm like, what was that all about? Was that just to kind of shoehorn the fact that he's gay in? Why, why is that relevant? I didn't understand what that was about. I'm not saying that muscle men can't be gay. I'm just saying I did not understand what the point of that was. Uh, it, it seemed to be, I don't know, to exist perhaps just to get people talking about it maybe. And that just seems a little bit desperate. Yeah, so, and also it's just, you know, the sequence was just far too long with, with um, uh, Lawrence Fishburne. I would have made it about, about half as much of what it, what it was. So yeah, there was just some real obvious script editing clangers that I would have, you know, flagged up and said, you know, what is this about? Because I don't, I genuinely don't understand what these bits are about. What are the monsters for? Why is he gay? Why um, aren't we hiding the fact that the Doctor is unarmed? Because it just seems really, really obvious to me. So that's the one you'd make better then? I think so, because it would be really easy to do. That's the frustrating thing is, you know, none of those relate to the massive big budget stuff that um, it's just literally about script development. So, no. you know, if they've got the if they've got the budget to drop people through the air, which they do, apparently, and to explode fires in people's faces and to create monsters, um, you know, with uh, thousands of pounds worth of makeup, then they could have just spent, you know, another two weeks on the script development working on it every day. Right. Now, before before I finish, I just there was one question that sprung to mind that I realised it would be remiss not to ask. And given we're Britflix.com, which is our interest is in um, British films, mm-hmm. I wondered if you could recommend a British thriller that you, um, you know, past, present or future, um, that you that you heartily sort of enjoy for the, for the reasons that you've written a book about thrillers. Sure. Um, I like, to be honest, I like most... British thrillers. I'm not keen on the ones that uh, pretend to be thrillers and are actually really dramas. You know, the ones like Shank, for example. Um, uh, so, you know, anything that's, I mean, obviously Deviation and Assassin, 
obviously, because I love those, because that's why I got involved with them. Um, but in terms of British thrillers that I, I genuinely enjoy, that I'm nothing to do with, I would say possibly um, The Disappearance of Alex, Alice Creed yeah. is, is an excellent thriller. It's really, really good. Um, gangster movies in general are usually good. I don't understand why people are so sniffy about them. Um, I mean, it's, it's fair enough if you don't like that type of movie, but if you like thrillers and you like strong arenas and you like strong um, larger-than-life characters, I mean, yes, arguably uh, a lot of them sideline female characters, um, and that's an issue, um, but... You know, things like Lock Stock or JK's Hard Men or um, Lair Cake or any anything like that, um, you know, have very, very strong plot driven stories. And we can learn a lot from them as screenwriters, even if we don't actually like them on the basis that, you know, very often all the plots will hang together quite well um, and and have dialogue that is memorable and characters that are larger than life i mean isn't that what we're trying to do mm. and also gangster is is part is possibly or arguably you know the um the top of of british output anyway we should know what they're doing um other british uh thrillers that i enjoy uh would be the whole I really enjoyed that movie. The one about the teenagers. I've they go down one. into a big hole uh, for a party and then three of them die and only one survives. Um, that's, a, that's a great, a great film. Um, and I just, I just think we should be aiming more for the Hollywood, Hollywoodized kind of genre of thriller that has a commercial hook and great characters and a great story that is memorable and yeah okay fine um you might not like the particular story or whatever but if it all hangs together then as screenwriters and as filmmakers then we really need to stop being so sniffy about british film i've got a strong suspicion that a lot of people automatically go oh well if it's british it's shit Mm. And that really gets on my tits because, uh, you know, the only people, who, Americans are not the only t people who can make good movies. And I think a lot of people are so kind of in love with the media imperialism of the American accent that whenever they see a British one, it seems like it's stilted and weird. And we need to really switch on to, if we want to be filmmakers, if we want to be screenwriters, we need to um, to watch as many British movies as possible. No, I totally agree with you, and I think you know it's sort of it, it's you know a film a film like Sexy Beast or like like you say uh, yeah, Sexy J Beast was fantastic. J.K.'s um, Hard Men, you mm -hmm. know, it's um, they're they're easily they're easily overlooked when people try and think of film because it's a British film, you know, and gangster films, you know, they're so varied. I mean, if you you just said Sexy Beast, which uses dream sequence, hmm. versus Hard Men, which has singing in it. I mean, what's the likelihood of you know the, of a, a gangster movie having singing in? You know, Vincent True. was singing. How fancy? How fantastic is that? Then you t look at something like The Bank Job. That's a period setting. That's a great I, film. <laughs> yeah, it's a great film. The Bank Job. I love The Bank Job. You know, there's so many great gangster movies. Well, it won't surprise. I mean, I watched, it won't um, I watched uh, oh, what's that one with Jet Li the other day? Uh, Unleashed. How fantastic is that film? It's a bloody either. martial arts film with Gangster, with Bob Hoskins, Jet Li and Morgan Freeman. I mean, how amazing is that? 
It's just fantastic. And yet, you know, we it's I mean, it was set in Glasgow. I mean, what the hell? But I mean, it's it's so weird to see that something like that, you know, we in in Britain we will take risks like that. Um, you know, French French writer Luc Besson wrote it, wrote it, you know. We will take risks like that with good material and Unleashed is good material. It's unusual and a bit weird, but the characters you genuinely feel for. I mean, how how many gangster and martial arts films can you say that about? Not many, not many. Exactly. So. Well, on the Britflix website, um, the, the top 25 British gangster films is our hardy perennial article. It's the one that, you know, top searches and people keep coming back to. So mm, mm. the definitely I mean, interest. And I, really I remember going, I was in Berlin earlier this year and a friend of mine took me to the kind of equivalent of HMV in the mm-hmm. middle of Berlin. And it might surprise certainly listeners out there that the the British hard men is is an is an icon in itself. Oh yeah. And, and to a foreign audience, it has its it has its place. I mean, there was a whole section of DVDs that. Oh, was, I believe it. That, I mean, Danny Dyer is the most instantly recognisable British man internationally. I mean, he's generated millions of pounds at the box office. I mean, uh, he is, you know, whether you love him or whether you hate him, everyone has got an opinion about him. And what's particularly interesting that I've found in my own travels is that, I mean, I love Ryan Gosling and like a lot of British women, uh, I think he's attractive. I think he's a good actor. I think he chooses great movies generally. Um, But if you go, if you talk to an American, they are generally quite derisive about Ryan Gosling and they seem to have the same kind of um, relationship with Ryan Gosling as a lot of British people have with Danny Dyer they think he's ubiquitous mm. they think he's um, they think he's every uh, you know they think he's everywhere they choose his crap movies all that kind of stuff and yet if you talk to the Americans they go oh Danny Dyer I love him you know so I think it's familiarity breeds contempt <laughs> it's like goo cigarettes the foreign is, is much more attractive I think so I think so and I mean it's it's just one of those I mean Ryan Gosling did Drive he did uh, Only God Forgives he does The Ides of March you know he did, he did Fracture you know he's done lots of great movies and people and the Americans seem to forget that in the same way that we seem to forget that Danny has done some fantastic movies some really genuinely good ones. No, no, and yet, no. Yeah, and yet people go, oh, Danny Dyer, you know. And it's like he is really good. No, and fo- he, fo- and even if you don't like him, he sells seats. So what, what are you going on about? Oh, indeed. Now, now, what have you got? Now, finally then, what have you got in the pipeline? Now, I mentioned at the beginning London Screenwriting Festival. So you've That's got correct. that at the end of October, yeah? Yep, yep, yeah, 16 days to uh, London Screenwriters Festival, uh, kicking off this year uh, with uh, networking training on the Thursday, and then on the Friday, uh, we've got uh, various things going on on the Friday, um, I'll be, well, some point over the weekend, I'm not sure exactly when I'll be doing a um, how to write a thriller session. I'll also be running the script labs for the third consecutive year. Um, We've got Joe Esterhaz coming in for that, which is very exciting (laughs) for me as a a big fan. Uh, We've also got J.K. Amalu doing a concept workshop with uh, Six Lucky Screenwriters. And we've got Philip Shelley coming in, uh, a veteran script editor from uh, the Channel 4 screenwriting course and um, various BBC productions. He'll be doing a script lab, as will Luke Ryan from uh, Distorted Productions and Paramount, uh, doing one on transmedia. Uh, we've got 
the collaborate guys, the short film guys from Rankin Productions doing a, a script lab. Um, and we've got Barbara Machen from Waking the Dead, BBC's uh, thriller about cold cases. So that's really exciting. So thriller is very much uh, part of my remit at London Screenwriters this year. So that's really exciting. Um, I'll also be talking to Tony Jordan, um, who's another hero of mine. So that's pretty cool. And um, also I'll be talking to Jonathan and JK about gangster movies. So, um, you know, we've, we're very much um, heavy on, on thriller features and the thriller genre in general this year. So that's, uh, that's very hear, exciting. Lucy, good to hear. So what about yourself then? Anything? Are you working on a, on a novel? Or yes, any, any... I'm, right, I'm working on a new novel. Um, it's actually a romantic comedy. I thought I'd do something a little <laughs> bit different this time. Um, it's about uh, dating and love for women between 18 and 30. Um, I suppose you would call it a chiclet in the uh, classic sense, although it's, you know, for me, I don't do fluffy and I don't do erotica or anything like that. So it's very much issue-led um because that's what I do uh, my first novel was about teenage pregnancy this one is about love and negotiating love when you're maybe a little bit outside the ordinary so we've got a single mum of of 23 we've got uh, a lesbian and uh, and then we've got like a virgin girl geek uh, all together and and their adventures in in love and how far down the line are you with that um i'm about halfway through now i'm hoping to have it finished by christmas um i hope to get it out to uh the publishers in the new year in time for london book fair and and frankfurt and all the, and all those uh basic um places basically excellent well look lucy that's uh i think we've had plenty there of uh there's a lot going on it sounds like for, for me and there's there was a full education there about the the script reader and script editor as well as a great insight into the script script writing craft so I thank you very much for your time no problem any time For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 